Larry Wilmore here, host of the podcast, Larry Wilmore, Black Um Air. Now, in my latest episode, I talked to Senator Bernie Sanders about the state of the Democratic Party and the polarization happening in America and Trump's rise to power. And Trump picked up and he said, you know what? I feel your pain. The establishment is ignoring you. I, Donald Trump, I, of all people. I'm going to take on the establishment. Well, he lied, of course. Yeah. But that was his message. So you can hear this episode in full and subscribe to my show by searching for Larry Wilmore, Black on the Air, on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify Mobile, or wherever you get your podcasts. Channel 33. This is the Press Box, and I'm Brian Curtis, editor-at-large of The Ringer. We have three guests on today's show. First up, Brian Kenny from MLB Network is going to talk about the downsizing of one of ESPN's signature shows, Baseball Tonight. And then The Ringer's Claire McNear is going to discuss Fox News and how they've covered or haven't covered the revelations about Trump and Russia. And finally, my buddy John Greenberg from The Athletic Chicago is going to come on and talk about all the Chicago Cubs-related books that have come out since the Magical World Series run and this whole idea of instant nostalgia. We're still processing the carnage of the ESPN layoffs, and one victim that I think remains underprocessed is Baseball Tonight, the venerable ESPN highlights show. A longtime face of that show, Jason Stark, got laid off. And now Baseball Tonight has been relegated to just one permanent night on ESPN's schedule. So joining me to appreciate Baseball Tonight is MLB Network host, author of the book Ahead of the Curve, and a former Baseball Tonight host himself, Brian Kenny. Brian, how are you? Good, Brian. It's good to talk to you, always. I want to hear what Baseball Tonight looked like through your eyes. You get to ESPN in 1997 after paying your dues and then some on local TV. As a young anchor, what was exciting about that show? Oh, it was, uh, you know, it was the pinnacle. It was, it was awesome. I mean, I, um, I, like everybody else, you know, had watched, you know, baseball tonight, you know, through the years as it built up. And you're right, by the, by the mid-90s, that it really become something because it was the one place you could go to to see games that were in, you know, that were in progress, that were happening right then and there. It felt... It felt live-ish, even if it wasn't live. And, it, I mean, think of the competition at the time where it was basically your local news, you know, waiting for the sports guy to show up, or, you know, not just sports center, but a better baseball version of sports center. So I, I knew when I, when I got there, I tried to make, you know, everyone there aware of my love of baseball history and the things I had written, which, you know, was pretty modest at the time, but uh, just my, my knowledge of the game. And uh, I tried to make the executives aware of it. So, like, you know, I'd love to do it. And when I got the call to start doing it here and there and dribs and drabs, it was obviously a huge thrill. Was that the magic of it, the live aspect? I mean, ESPN had done that with the NCAA tournament in the 80s, right, with Bob Lee and Dick Vitale kind of whirling between buzzer beaters. And basically right. you're, you're now in the 90s doing that every night on Baseball Tonight? Yeah. That, I mean, again, think of the landscape. And I know you've written stuff about this recently. And that Yeah, the landscape has changed dramatically in, in 20 years, which I guess is probably always true. And, he, you know, like, I'm, we're talking about 1997 and now and how different it is. And, uh, but probably 1977 and 1997, also drastically different. Uh, but it, it was very different then. 
in that, again, it was, it was your local newscast waiting for your local sportscaster to come on with the highlights. And I was a local sportscaster, and we, you're always worried that, hey, is the game over? We're really technically not supposed to use the highlights until the game is over. And suddenly Baseball Tonight is on, and you can you know not only show a highlight from the first inning of the game, you can go to something that just happened. And back then, there's no MLB at bat app, you know, so you're not like saying, hey, that happened eight minutes ago. That Pujols home run, I saw that. No, you didn't see it. It happened, you know, you know, two minutes prior, and it was brand spanking new on national TV. So there's no question the rules that, they, that, that were put in place and the time. Again, you know, we're still talking about a time when having, you know, a full hour, you know, just to do baseball – and just to concentrate on it was mind blowing. You know, it was like again, think of the differences from Sports Center where you did a highlight, maybe you brought in a guest analyst for a quick pop, as opposed to baseball tonight where you would come out of each almost each highlight and have a full fledged conversation. So it was the rules and it was the time allotted and it was the competition at the time, which was very meager, you know, as far as national baseball that was up to date. I was going to ask you that as a host, the what what you can do on baseball tonight is actually break down something. And this is you turning to Peter Gammons or Timmy Kirkjian or one of these ex players and saying, let's talk about what just happened rather than racing off to do the Edmonton Oilers highlight or something like that. Right. Also, I have to say, you know, when I think about, you know, when I was writing ahead of the curve and I had to think about how I came to be so. Uh, analytically inclined and like what made me into this sabermetric zealot like what made me into this was uh, I try to explain to people when you're doing highlights you have to come up with something to fill and even on Sports Center or Baseball Tonight they give you a highlight and for example I'll just give you a quick example uh, you would get a Sports Center highlight you know Yankees Red Sox and on Sports Center it would be 42 seconds long Baseball Tonight would be I don't know three minutes and 30 seconds you know, it's a drastic difference. You had a lot more to play with, many more plays on your Baseball Tonight highlight as opposed to your Sports Center highlight. And when you're going through it, it will just give you a description of who the player was, what the inning was, who the pitcher was, and that's it. All the other things, all the booyah and, uh, you know, bring me your finest meats and cheeses, those are up to you. <laughs> and for, for me, uh, you know, say hello to my little friend. All of that is up to you. Um, but I would come up with, you know, uh, like in the old days, I would say, hey, you know, uh, I don't know, uh, I'm trying to think of a, a relevant guy. You know, Don, Ma- Don Mattingly is, is hitting 343, and that leads the American League. Or uh, Dave Winfield now has 22 home runs. Uh, you know, that's uh, only three shy of a career high. You're always trying to come up with something f- to put some context into the play rather than saying, and Mattingly with a single – it drove in a run. It's two to one. Winfield with a home run. Now it's two two. You know that's boring. You want to come up with something and information. I was always trying to slam information into the highlight. And after a while, like as I'm, you know, I mean, through the years, obviously, I'm, I'm have been reading Total Baseball and Bill James and all of that. And I was saying things like, "Hey, by the way, Bobby Abreu." You know, has a 440 on base percentage. It's number two in the National League. Uh, Brian Giles is slugging 590. 
that's top five in the National League. I was throwing these things in because I was looking for relevant information. And because of that, because I had so much time to fill in all of these highlights, mostly on Baseball Tonight, and then someone would question me, hey, why were you bringing that up? And I'm like, because it's, it has a direct correlation to the runs scored. This is what's important. That's where a lot of this came from. If I was just doing you know, my sports cast in Kingston, New York, or Albany, or, or Hartford, or wherever else I w- would have gone, um, I would have just been doing my standard three-minute sportscast, doing the scores, and I'd be done with it. Because I had to explore and go deeper and try to give people relevant information, that's where I was like, why am I giving you know, batting average home runs and RBIs? It's time to move on to the new numbers. You wrote in your book that you actually started using those terms on baseball tonight in 1999, which is pretty early in the sabermetric learning curve of America. It's four years until Moneyball comes out. What's the reaction from viewers and what's the reaction inside of ESPN when you start throwing that stuff out on the air? Resistance, a lot of resistance. And that's what I, that's really what drove the book was why, like what, like uh, these are people who like baseball. It almost goes back to, um, Dan O'Krent, who was, uh, writing the first Bill James piece in Sports Illustrated. And he, you know, had these, had these things on Bill James and he had fact checkers at Sports Illustrated. You know, he told me this himself. He had fact checkers at Sports Illustrated. Um, coming up with things and saying, hey, by the way, your man Bill James was wrong on this guy's number of at-bats or his hits or something, because at the time it was hard to get this information. There was a war about information in baseball and getting it from Elias Sports Bureau, and Bill James had to collect it himself. So he had some of the numbers wrong, and they actually spiked the piece. Did you ever hear this, Brian? Sure, famously, yeah. Yeah, they, yeah. All right. they, they spiked the piece initially because they were fact-checking. But what was fascinating to me uh, and later they ran it. He kept pushing and pushing. Maybe it was a year later. But what was fascinating uh, to him and to me was why were they hating on the idea of writing, you know, about Bill James? Uh, you know, why the resistance? And I always thought, like, why is this resistance from players, managers, from my producers, and from analysts who really like baseball? Why? And that was part of it, was learning how we think and just how much we're herd animals. And there was resistance. The one thing I wrote, I didn't want to get into, you know, all oh, these producers, they didn't know anything. I don't, I don't want to go down that road. But I did write that one, you know, my, my nickname on Baseball Tonight from one CP was Sluggo. Because I always talked about slugging percentage. <laughs> and I was like, no, slugging percentage is important. But I was, I just, just to let it be known, yeah, in 1999, you were made fun of because you brought up slugging percentage. Just like two years ago, it was war. What is it good for? Absolutely nothing. That would be saying to me. And now it's, um, you know, exit velocity or launch angle that is the new thing that's too wonky. And then eventually it gets into the language and it changes. But there's no question. I mean, even in 1999, which is like, Eight years after I first read, you know, sabermetrics in total baseball, um, it was still like not accepted and actively resisted, especially in the national media. Resisted on a baseball highlight show. That is, it's, it's that's so fascinating to me. How much? Yeah, no one wanted to hear it. Again, it's anger. It's like, and when you bring it up now, just watch the reaction from people when you bring up something. I don't know. That's I don't know. A little more cutting edge. I don't know. Is win probability added old at this point? Weighted runs created plus seems old to me, but um, the stack has catch probability is still something. Is now something that's brand spanking new, and and people are like, what's this? Why can't I just enjoy, enjoy the catch? You know, it's like that's that's. The way we work as humans. <laughs> How much, when I think of watching baseball tonight and watching my friends watch baseball tonight, 
so much of it is fueled by fantasy baseball and all of us low stakes gamblers like sitting there and again back in this very innocent media age when you couldn't get that information easily how much of that how much of fantasy baseball do you think floated baseball tonight I don't know um it's funny I didn't play fantasy baseball until like like well into that so I was not one of those guys oddly enough and then of course I I loved it but I was late to it um in playing it and I don't know. Probably a good bit. But, I mean, part of it. I, I, but I think most of it was just the first time you could see um, a full explosion of baseball for a full hour. You just didn't get that. I mean, it it, it really didn't exist. No one was doing. You know, this week in baseball was only how many years before that? You know, was it? That's ninety. Let's say it's ninety nine. Eight. Like in the eight, ten years before sure. this week in baseball was still like on the air and big, right? Yeah. You know, hey fans, here are some here are some follies, some wacky plays from the week before. <laughs> that's ten years before. How you know, about that? The, yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. You know, and it's uh, Johnny Bench and the baseball bunch. And hey, look, it's the San Diego Chicken. That's only a, that's ten years before that. So to have an hour of baseball highlights and then analysis and, and perspective is important. You know, to have it come back and, you know, and, and have it, you know, be Peter Gammons or whoever it would be say, Hey, this is what the front office is thinking. That was brand new. So I think fantasy was part of it, but I, I think it was much, much bigger than that. ESPN hasn't said why they downsized baseball tonight, but I think there are probably two cross currents here. One is this idea that baseball as a sport is somehow shrinking in American culture, which you have heard and I have heard a ton about. What do you make of that idea? Um, I have a lot of ideas on that. I, it's um, in, in a lot of ways, it, it can be a, a self-fulfilling prophecy within the media. Um, when I was there at ESPN, we used to get these surveys and just to show us that, do you see how much football is king? And I used to do things on my on my radio show at ESPN and and talk about how hey by the way the revenue um, I forgot what year this was exactly but the revenue uh, overall revenue between baseball and and the NFL was very close. Um, used to have these arguments with Bino Cook. You know, like one of the pleasures of working at ESPN, I could have an argument with Bino Cook on this. Um, you know, because he loved baseball but hated on it. Uh, and there's a lot of that, right? It becomes a thing where you just kind of, oh, it's slow and it's old and blah 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 blah. Um, and uh, I, I, I don't buy it. I, I know that there is that narrative that it's an older audience. And that has been true. And yet, if you look at the demographics of those who have, you know, the at bat app. It is very different, and I think uh, a lot of it is driven by the media. It sounds like an overly simplistic thing. It's the media's fault. But I felt that within the walls that, hey, if on SportsCenter, you can, you can feel it. You know, and, and ESPN's power is not what it was, but when I was there, I, you could definitely feel it. Like when we were really big on hockey, it was big. When we were big on NASCAR, it was big. Now, I think ESPN doesn't just drive that. It reacts to the audience, of course. But you can get caught up in these, in this, you know, kind of the polling and what you think people are into or interested in. And then, you know, if you, everyone around you keeps saying the NFL is king, well, the NFL might end up being king. And I think it was much closer in popularity than, than, we, than they thought at the time. And I actively fought it at the time as well. Um, you know, when SportsCenter leads with the NFL power rankings, I, I saw them do that. And to me, it was, that's a mistake. It's like, 
do what, what is news. Don't keep trying to come up with NFL topics. Let the news dictate it. Come up with interesting segments, but don't, let, don't make it your news that it must be the NFL because people like the NFL. I think it's just a much too simplistic way of looking at it. Second factor, I think, here in the downsizing and is what every sports anchor in America, present company included, is facing these days, which is how do you do highlights in the age of the iPhone? What do you, how, do you, how do you think about that problem? Uh, yeah, I think it's shifting. Uh, there's no question about that. I think there's still going to be – there's still what, – what you'll want is a combination of of the highlights, but then also analysis and instant analysis, and I think that's what's led to kind of this you know hot takes revolution that we're in now, uh, because you know you want something, you want to you see something, and you instantly want to place context to it. You know, kind of like what I was explaining before with with highlights. You see Aaron Judge make a great catch. Well, okay, but uh, well, what does that mean? And is he a good defender? And how good? Um, you know, he's currently tied with Jason Hayward in defensive runs saved for right fielders in Major League Baseball. You know, it gives you a little more input. So I think there are things to add. But yeah, as far as straight, um, you know, straight highlight shows, um, I'm not saying they're dead. I'm not on. You know, what Keith Olbermann says, like they, these things are are dead. They're not dead, but they're certainly not the driving force. That they once were. You know, the media is is evolving. There's no question, and I think it comes down to as a broadcaster, it will it it still comes down to the basics of your writing, your understanding, your ability to put it in the proper context, and and do some decent analysis of it. That will be much more of a requirement than it was in the highlight age. 30 years from now, when we look back at the golden age of ESPN, I think the three great highlight shows are probably going to be SportsCenter, NFL Primetime, and Baseball Tonight. I think that's the troika. If you, if, if you accept that hypothesis, Mr. Kenny, what do you think makes Baseball Tonight unique? Will, 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 will we look back on and say what's unique about Baseball Tonight? Um, well, it was, you know, part of that era where it – uh, where it was new and it was bigger and it just blew everything else out. You know, it blew out the local newscasts, you know, local sports casts. Um, and it was, uh, it was fun. Um, it, it did have a higher level of analysis. It took it seriously. Um, and, you know, there was a lot more, there was a lot more depth to it. You know, it's, it's, you know, and it just continues to go, you know, to another level um, like here at MLB Network, like you go from Sports Center, you know, you have a, a certain amount of the show that will have baseball. Baseball tonight had a full hour, and then frequently two hours a night, where it would be in two separate hours. At MLB Network now, we do 24/7. Like so, to compete with us is difficult. Like we're we're going to do a better job on baseball, and at that time, baseball tonight was going to do a better job on baseball than anything else. By the way, I reject your hypothesis, though. The greatest shows were Friday Night Fights, uh, The Hot List, and I'd have to come up with another one. I'm not sure. Maybe it's Pardon the Interruption. I, 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 <laughs> but that's my, that's, that's my own personal bias this seem, coming through. <laughs> this seems to be the greatest shows where you could catch Brian Kinney wearing a groovy leather jacket and standing next to Max, Max Kellerman. <laughs> that was Max. 
that was Max in the leather. I, uh, I, I never went to the leather jacket. I'm going to find photographic was, evidence. Okay. We're, yeah, we, we're, we, we're no, record. no, that, that, that was Max, man. I was, we, uh, Max and I joke about that, but we, we, we sometimes say, like Max's uh, brothers would say, you know, we'll look back on a time when it was Max Kellerman, Brian Kenny, Teddy Atlas, and Bob Papa and Joe Tessitore all on the same show. And, <laughs> and we're like, what? Will we? And yet, uh, you know, I, like you guys are sad about baseball tonight. We were very sad about Friday night fights, you know, that, and I never thought I'd see that show go away. I never thought I'd see baseball tonight go away. Um, yeah, I, I, I feel it. I lived through it. Um, I've moved on, but you, there's, there's no question you look back with a bit of nostalgia. Brian Kenny, thanks for doing this. Really appreciate it. All right, guys. Yeah, good talking to you. Take care. Claire Maynier is one of the very best writers at The Ringer, yet last week the editors punished her by forcing her to watch Fox News. She joins us today to talk about the experience. How are you, Claire? Doing well. How about you? Very good. So the news last week, like the news this week, was all about Trump and Russia. And the joke has been that at 5 p.m. Eastern every single day, there's this incredible bombshell on Twitter that would be the lead story in any other year. <laughs> yep, it's very true. It's been a very exciting couple of weeks. I was on vacation for the first of the two weeks, and I was like, oh, I'm so glad to be coming back when I come back because I'll have missed it all. And then last week was even crazier. So you turn over to Fox News in the middle of all this, and you see what? Well, you know, I watching all of these stories drop one by one every day, something something new, um, it it seemed so unambiguously bad. You know, he fired his FBI director. He came out and said that he fired his FBI director to stop an investigation. You know, he's under investigation by a special counsel. He's giving away an ally's intelligence to Russian diplomats. Um, and it, it all seemed bad, right? Unambiguously bad. <laughs> yes, and does. I was sort of <laughs> curious to see um, what the spin was. Uh, so I tuned into Hannity last week um, for a few shows, and uh, it turns out the spin is not even spin because they're not even talking about the same issues at all. Um, it's been entirely kind of a twofold discussion. One of what uh, Hannity has taken to calling the Destroy Trump Alliance, which is a shadowy plot to bring down Trump, and um, also sort of delving into conspiracies like the Seth Rich conspiracy, which has kind of picked up since then. So Yeah, the Seth Rich thing is just mind-blowing because it's he wild. is, for people that don't know, a former DNC staffer who was murdered in Washington, D.C., but has been picked up by Fox as this kind of, hey, look over here distraction. Let's not talk about what's actual news, but let's imagine or go down these conspiracy rabbit holes that the DNC or someone in the Democratic Party had Seth Rich murdered because he was leaking secrets uh, to WikiLeaks, to Julian Assange or whatever. I mean, that is, right. for a major news network, I, that is pretty incredible. Did, did you see that Kim.com of uh, what was mega video fame got involved today? He had a whole exchange with Sean Hannity on, on there, um about how he's the one who can prove definitively that Seth Rich was talking to WikiLeaks. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's just been this incredible, bizarre, so out of left field distraction that is also, like you said, profoundly not about the actual news of the last couple of weeks. 
point you made in your piece is that it's symptomatic of this age we're living in now, this media age, whereas we're not even really having an argument about whether Trump, whether there's interesting evidence about collusion with Russia or Trump's sort of financial ties or the financial ties of people in the White House. We're just we're having actual two sort of weirdly parallel discussions, one about a murdered DNC staffer and one about the White House. Is there is there any right. is there any end to that? I mean, is that is that just are we now fragmented in such a way and we have proven and Fox News has proven that there's such an audience for both things that we're just going to be on two parallel tracks forever? You know, I, I wish I felt more optimistic about this. Um, but the thing that is really worrying to me is even as these things that kind of become partisan obsessions, particularly on the right right now, um, and are then subsequently discredited, you know, whether it's stuff like the attendance at Trump's inauguration or something like Pizzagate, um, even when these things are sort of definitively established as untrue or silly or dangerous or a waste of time um, or not proof of what people said they were proof of, um, it doesn't change the conversation. There's no sort of uh, chastening. And if anything, it's sort of interpreted as proof that the conspiracy against Trump or against his supporters is even bigger. Um, so I have a really hard time seeing it getting better just because it's it's so deeply divisive on such a deep, deep level. And, and uh, you know, the, a lot of these moments were like, I thought for sure that the appointment of a special counsel was going to be a moment of not necessarily coming together, but at least having sort of the same conversation that seems like pretty unambiguously nonpartisan um, bad news for Trump. And <laughs> it didn't happen. It, it just divided the conversation even more. I had the other day a smart sports media person suggested to me that Fox's sort of shadow is in some part responsible for this notion of liberal ESPN that we keep hearing about, that middle-aged guys who you know are watching Hannity or The Five or whatever it is and basically have Fox on all day, then turn over to ESPN and are shocked to see even an even-handed discussion about Colin Kaepernick or LGBT rights or whatever it is. And all of a sudden, because it's so different from their normal world, ESPN becomes this liberal bastion. I, I don't actually think that theory is completely nuts <laughs> because I think it's part of what you talked about in your story. You get so indoctrinated that the rest of the world seems weird, right? The rest of the world seems like it's off on this island. And right. And I think, I think you know, when we look at the legacy of Fox News, I think that is part of it. I think absolutely that's part of it. It's a sort of a new normal for a very small group of people. Yeah, and I, I mean, I think that um, I don't know that Fox News is doing something especially different this year in particular than they've done over the last five or ten years necessarily. But I think what's different right now is that we know that Donald Trump thrives on cable news. We know that he watches literal hours of it every single morning and has done so for years. Um, and we also know that the narratives that are built there um, directly affect what he does. Maggie Haberman at the New York Times has had some just incredible stories about the inner workings of the White House um, since Trump took office and has written a couple times about how, um, you know, when when there's been a, a setback for the White House, um, like the, the failure of Trump's travel ban, um, and the White House has put out a pretty moderate, reasonable statement the night of um, that news. And then the next morning, Trump will sit down and watch this 
rhetoric on Fox as these very, very partisan people sort of go into this loop of hysteria about it, and then he will begin to echo that himself. And despite the kind of neutral response the night before, we'll go on a tweet storm um, and get worked up. And um, I could see how, you know, once once you've built that ecosystem, and it really is an ecosystem, it's it's kind of hard to look at anything else. Yeah, and it's one thing when Grandpa is trapped in the ecosystem. It's another thing when the actual president of the United States is a victim <laughs> right, of it. Right, right. There was amazing news yeah. this last week. MSNBC finished first in the primetime cable news ratings for the first time in its history. And if you look at this 25 to 50-year-old, 54-year-old, excuse me, demographic that advertisers seek out, CNN actually finished second and Fox was third. Right? And what everyone has said is the problem is that, as you put it, the news is Russia. But Fox, because of their partisan inclination, doesn't want to cover the news. So what is, how do you think, what does Fox do now when, you're, when you've cast your lot with Trump and all the news is bad news about Trump and you don't cover it and then your ratings go down because that's what America actually wants to know about? What's the solution? I don't know. You know, I saw something today. I, um, I, I did not have my TV on this morning, but uh, somebody was, was talking about how Today, um, CNN was devoted to just nonstop Trump coverage because he's on his, his trip right now, um, whereas Fox was nonstop coverage of the bombing in Manchester um, and kind of doubling down on, on certain veins of xenophobia that they uh, and Trump have, have shown a facility for. Um, but I don't know. I, I, they certainly don't seem worried at this stage, and they certainly don't seem to be trying to... Um, change their messaging if anything they're kind of going further down the rabbit hole um and it could be that you know once if those ratings stay that way and it really starts to hurt maybe they do or, or you know just bill, bill o'reilly is now gone but he i think for a long term for a long time um served as a more neutral voice on the network um not neutral but more neutral maybe than somebody like sean hannity um and Maybe you try to bring in some of those voices. I don't know. But I, I, like I said, I don't think Fox is at all at the point where they're considering something like that. Yeah, it's funny because during the primary, Fox was considered to be early on sort of anti-Trump. This is when Trump and Megyn Kelly were right. having this sort of very public battle. And then Rupert Murdoch sort of realizes that good business is being pro-Trump because he's going to win the nomination and also because a huge chunk of Fox news viewers are Trump voters. He's right in their demographic. So all of a sudden, the network becomes incredibly pro-Trump. And I imagine that some of the fear, don't you think, now is that if you were to sort of come out against the president, that you leave yourself, you leave your right flank open for Bill O'Reilly and Sinclair or whomever to sort of start a new news network uh, or something online. Right. Absolutely. Or Breitbart, right? Or uh, whoever. Right. And, and I mean, you know, that was sort of the the um, the popular theory was if Trump had lost, he, he probably would have gone on to start his own his own news network. Right. Um, and was sort of prepping stars um, to do something like that. But obviously that has not happened. Um, but you get into these weird these weird moments where it's clear that the messaging kind of goes both ways between Fox and um the White House after Hannity had been sort of having these shows for, for days on end. Um, last week, Mike Pence sent out, um, or Mike Pence's team, the White House team, sent out an email from Mike Pence um, 
with the goal of fundraising that just said, in all caps, sabotage, and you know, about <laughs> trying to protect Trump from the many people trying to, to sabotage him. Um, so it's just, you know, it just goes in this loop that way. One of the biggest news bombshells last week was the death of Roger Ailes, who is, of course, the spiritual and actual godfather of Fox News. When you're watching last week, put aside, if you if, if this is even possible, the ideology and, and what you're seeing on there, just in terms of theatrics, in terms of style, in terms of broadcasting, how is Fox different? How is the network that Ailes created different than CNN, MSNBC, and other stuff we watch on TV? I mean, I think it's different right now, at least in the sense that, you know, the president obviously is sort of a part of the machinery in a way that I don't think the president has ever been the part of um, cable news machinery to to that degree anyway. Um, I think that there's, you see similar things um, on the left for sure. Like I, I will go home and my mom is just, she is a diehard Maddow fan and I don't personally watch Maddow, but I always interesting to kind of go home and and see um how consistent the messaging is there as well but um at the same time Maddo is talking about the actual news of the day um instead of sort of spinning a totally different narrative entirely um so i think i think that's kind of the big thing right now um that fox really has just split off entirely from the sort of news cycle Claire McNear, thanks for doing this. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Dwight Eisenhower once warned America about the military-industrial complex, but who will sound the alarm for the Chicago Cubs' literary-industrial complex? I nominate John Greenberg, editor and lead columnist at The Athletic Chicago. John, thanks for joining me. Oh, thanks for having me. Every sports writer in America has this problem right now, which is that we have we get all these galleys from the publishers, and right now all of us have like five or six Chicago Cubs Insta books on our desk. <laughs> I, I can kind of like I can I can dip in and out, but this is your job. How many of these will you actually read? You know, I'll get through them all. Um, I actually had my assistant editor, Lauren Commodore. Uh, she loves to read as well, and she read. The first three, or the maybe not the first three, but three the three main ones. I read one of them was written by my friend Dave Kaplan, uh, The Plan, which we've been making fun of him about for, for about a year. Um, <laughs> I have not read Verducci's yet, um, though I heard it's very good. Um, and then there's also the David Ross book about being a teammate. I, I probably won't read that one, I'll be honest. I might skim it. Um, and then Scott, uh, Scott Simon has one. Yeah, of NPR. Uh, the NPR guy. I actually have one of his old – I have that book, Home and Away, I've never read. I bought it like a book there that he wrote about his fandom then. Um, and that book kind of looks good. I might, I, might, I might check that out from the library. How about that? There we but, go. Uh, I will read the Verducci. I, I, I will say, like, the thing that kind of – I was talking about this the other day with someone, and I know probably what you want to talk about Insta books is that, you know, you, you don't get as much from the Insta book because you got to get it out really quickly. I think you had two months to write it. So there's going to be a lot of, like, play-by-play, you know what I mean? And, like, <laughs> it's not like Buster Olney, end of the Yankee dynasty, you know what I'm saying? Like, a really, I love those, thick, you know, like, really well-done research books. So Yeah, well, they're like pulp novels, aren't they? They're sort of written in white right. heat. 
you know, and a pulp novelist would have like a, a shootout or a sex scene. And a sports writer <laughs> writing in White Heat would do a bunch of play-by-play from the World Series. <laughs> right. That's, yeah, so that's what's happening. I think it's what's funny when I think about Cubs books is that there has actually never been a great Cubs book, somewhat surprisingly. No. And, you know, if we think of the White Sox, right, we have eight men out. Um, my Wobegon Texas Rangers have this great book called Seasons in Hell. The Yankees have a billion books. Do, do you have a theory about why we've never had a great Chicago Cubs book? You know, I think in a lot of ways, because the book publishing industry wants, uh, you know, usually you want a winner, right? Or at least like some, some drama. And there just really hasn't, hasn't been it. Maybe it's also, I mean, Jerome Holtzman wrote, you know, no cheering in the press box. Yeah. You know, and he covered the Cubs and the White Sox. Um, I'm trying, honestly, I, I've said it to, there's a, a writer, Paul Sullivan, I'm friends with, who writes for the Tribune. Uh, and he's covered the team, you know, pretty much around the longest. And I've told him he should have been writing a book all this time. And I think it's just, you know, uh, guys are just more, maybe it's more of just a work-a-day type mentality here. I mean, Sam Smith wrote the best, you know, the best covering a team book, I think, of all time for the Bulls. Absolutely. You know, the, the Jordan rules. So it's not like it can't be done. I mean, I've honestly, I've sent stuff out to agents trying to do it, and I really haven't got much response, and I've just kind of been busy you know, I wanted to do it last year too, and but I was starting up to cite the athletic, and I just really didn't think I'd have the time. And I'm still trying to maybe put together notes for this year because I think it's kind of interesting, you know, the kind of hangover season they're having. But um, yeah, I don't know why there hasn't been a great Cubs book. Now I have quite re- refresh my memory. Um, you know, the the Lardner book. Where where did that guy play? I'm trying to think. Well, I can't I can't think of the name right now. I'm like totally blanking when I brought this up on the podcast. Are you talking can't about you know, you know me Al? <laughs> Yeah, you know me. I wonder, who did he play for? Boy, I can't remember. We'll look that up. We'll, we'll do I, that. I feel like he was in Chicago. I think he said it in Chicago, though. Well, that might be that might be close then, and if, even if it's fictional. He, <laughs> no. We used to there, there was a guy, yeah, right? There was a guy on the Cubs we used to call. Uh, we used to say it was a lot like the Busher. <laughs> guy used to play. It was just kind of like a big knucklehead. What do you find from being in Chicago that people want to relive about last season, given the long wait? all the years of ineptitude. What is it they want in book form or otherwise right now? I guess maybe some reassurance <laughs> that it actually happened. <laughs> um, you know, I, I think I think they like the deep details. Like People really fell in love with this team, and it's not a controversial team. Like No one wants to read about like any fights, really. I mean, a little bit, you know, there's always that curiosity. But people like, like the stuff of like Anthony Rizzo dressing as Rocky. You know, in boxing, like naked or half naked, they want like uh, the Theo stuff. Anything you write about Theo is like gold, you know, because people just love Theo and love to read about him because he's so, you know, he's eloquent, he's funny, and he says like, you know, all these these high minded things that people that people dig. You know, I guess Game Seven. I mean, people love to relive Game Seven, maybe the whole World Series. I mean, we were yesterday. I was at the park and we were talking with Bruce Bochy about. Um, and Joe Madden about game four of the NLDS, because that turned out to be a very pivotal game. Uh, but I think really all that, I think the first two rounds have washed away. They really want to hear about maybe a little bit of the regular season and then into the World Series and just remember how, because you got to give them, like, I would say the White Sox got screwed historically, the 2005, because they just blew through the playoffs. You know, they, they swept the Astros, who are not a national team, in, you know, four games, and then it was over. The Cubs... You know, it was going to be a big deal regardless there in the World Series, but then it turns into one of the most dramatic series 
you know, of all time, it really like paid off in that sense. Yeah, against another cursed team, the Indians. I think it's right. funny. I had a, uh, a book editor tell me one time that great baseball games or famous baseball games were like big battles in World War II and that we could always revisit them and always find unearthed new details that we hadn't before. And I sort of think game seven like that is going to be like that, that we're going to go yeah, back and yeah. back and find this little thing. And then someone will come through with a confession about something, about some minor bit of gamesmanship or something, and it'll just live forever. Right. We got to find those soon, though, because, man, they have combed through every every detail of that. You know, Theo, the one thing we didn't know, we didn't know the stuff about Theo and his kid. And he, he brought that up in his Yale speech. We did like the transcript of it on our site um, when he Theo spoke at Yale's class day. Um, and he brought up some stuff about a son that was really cute. But, yeah, you're right. I mean, we should I guess the Indian stuff hasn't been as uh, mined. <laughs> you know, maybe we need someone to see if there's an actual record. I think the next step is if someone actually recorded the like the Jason Hayward speech in the weight room. <laughs> that like would be the find. Tape. That would be the find. If they, were, <laughs> if they can record conversations in the White House, as Trump has alleged. Right. Why can't we record the Cubs locker? No, and I think, you know, I was really amazed at the Theo story because in this world we live in, where everything gets harvested for news on Twitter or otherwise, how did something like that make it past not only Tom Verducci, but Wright Thompson and all the other editors, um, excuse me, all the other writers who have written about Theo over the last year. That's pretty incredible. You mean the one about, the one, the one about his kid and the, the, the details about his kid? Yeah. Yeah, you know what? He doesn't really want to talk about his family that much. And that, I remember that was in the Wright story. And the Wright story came out, I think it came out during the playoffs, if I remember, or around that time. Um, and he said, like, yeah, my wife would be the best source for you, but you can't talk to her. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I think, you know, obviously we're not talking to the eight-year-old kid. I don't, I don't can't remember if I've ever really seen him that much except for after playoff games. So, yeah, that, that one, good for Theo for keeping a couple things for himself, you know. <laughs> I mean, Theo, listen, talk about a book. If Theo wanted to publish, like, any kind of book, it would be, like, the biggest seller in the world. And obviously he helped Verducci a lot, and he helped the other guys a little bit. But Theo could really, if he, I mean, he can do anything. Anything he touches, like, turns to gold right now. But um, that would be interesting. I actually really like dealing with Theo a ton. I mean, for a guy that's, like, the most, pretty much one of the most famous executives, if not the most famous right now, he's surprisingly down-to-earth and, like, fun to talk to, which, you know, is very helpful in my job. Yeah, you're absolutely right about the Theo book. I mean, in book publishing and in whatever little world of sports book publishing there is, that is, I think, probably next to maybe a Jeter memoir or something we haven't had yet. If you talk about people that are active in baseball, that is the single most sought-after book. That's a million-dollar book that will be yeah. written because you hit Boston, you hit Chicago, you hit the two most dramatic World Series wins in a long time. I do think it's funny that all the, the Cubs' instant nostalgia – is very much kind of in the sons of Moneyball vein. It's about the mm -hmm. building of a team. It's about the architect. Right. I think the if the Red Sox are the obvious analogy here, because that was our last little literary outpouring, I feel that was half Theo, but it was also half the idiots. It was a lot about the players and this weird ragtag bunch. I feel the Cubs thing is very Theo-centered. Am I wrong about that? No, you're you're 100% right. I mean, there's the Madden stuff, and there's a, there's a Madden book coming out. Um, should be out sometime this season because my friend wrote half of it with a Tampa Bay writer. Um, so there's the Madden stuff, though Game 7 kind of took the sheen off Madden. It was like this genius. 
Um, he was about to get really, really hammered by the national press. Um, but yeah, and then you know what the thing is: the other players on the, the good players in the Cubs are either really young, you know, so they're not like name brands yet, or they're not that personable, or you know, like John Lester, you know, John their pitchers, you know, and that that unless you unless you've got like a Roger Clemens type persona, you know, that's not you're not really going to be a superstar. So yeah, it really is Theo, and like we've joked that you know, oh now they're good. Theo's has it easier, but he really doesn't. And like I'll, I'll give you a good example. Um, after it was it was the last game of the 2016 season. It was in Milwaukee, and, and brief aside, I remember this because I. I found out I was getting laid off from ESPN earlier that week, and I still my buddy gave me a pep talk, and I went to the last home, the last Cubs game, just to do a column, you know, keep going on because I was going to still cover the playoffs. And Theo, you know, I met him outside of seats, you know, in, in a road games, the GMs and presidents would ever sit in the stands usually. So he was out there, he came out in Milwaukee, and he gave me great stuff. He actually gave me a really good pep talk about my career. And then I ended up taking about 15 pictures of him in fans <laughs> because everyone kept stopping. So in the middle of our interview, I'd stop, take out someone's camp, take someone's phone, take a picture. People were taking pictures of us talking. Like he jokes that he can walk around fine in Chicago, but like he gets, you know, people don't mob him, but like he is super famous. And he's, I mean, he's in very in demand for speeches right now. Like he could do two or three a week for a lot of money. And, and just his control over the franchise, the smoothness which, which, with which it operates, that affects yeah, all this too. Yeah. Because I remember growing up, the Cowboys won three Super Bowls when I was in high school. All those books were about how this team almost came apart <laughs> or was about to just fly <laughs> apart. Whereas Cubs nostalgia is about how just wonderfully well everything went and you know it's going to continue to go, hopefully. Yeah, I mean, and there's some stuff that, you know, it doesn't get reported as much, you know, the off-the-record things about how, like, people really get along some ways. You know, there's always a little friction here or there. But, you know, yeah, the thing is, Theo was brought into this team that, you know, it never won. And, and, you know, the management of the Tribune Company and the Wrigley family before that was so poor. And then Ricketts, you know, he, he was obviously he didn't really know what he was what he got himself into. How could he? And he, he really, they really had a through a Hail Mary because I, we were all writing, like, they should hire a Theo Epstein type. And they actually hired Theo Epstein. You know, <laughs> I wasn't plugged into the, you know, the turmoil in Boston, I guess, like I should have been that, to see that would have been an option. But yeah, so they hired Theo. And then the first, you know, a couple years it was slow. And God, you know, you hate Theo because he's that smart guy that, you know, he, de- he doesn't tell you he's smart, but kind of does. And he was like, listen, this is what's going to go on. You're going to complain. Everyone's going to say it's too slow. And then all of a sudden we're going to catch fire and all these fans are going to fall in love with the prospects and we're like whatever man this is a big market don't treat us like we're you know we're we're kids in some small market and of course everything he said came true even though it all a lot of it came true in ways he didn't imagine it was going to come true like he didn't know you know he couldn't he could not even he would admit it a hundred times that he had no clue like how quickly it was going to come together like this and that they got really lucky on some breaks. But you're right. Theo is just like he's got he's, – listen, he's a good-looking guy. He's got a name brand. And he's actually, like, interesting to talk to, which, you know, in today's world, there you know, there are – one, we don't get a ton of access to the athletes. There aren't a lot of athletes that want to be – they either want to be super interesting as a brand or they want to be very bland. And, you know, and listen, there's some sports – I'm talking to you from Bears right now at House Hall where, I mean, I think the GM is good to the B-writers, but, like, you're not going to get anything from them. If you're not, you know, in tight, whereas Theo, you know, I've gotten in a little close with him and 
he's really easy to talk to. So, you know, he gets a good, um, he gets a um, good treatment from us because he treats us well and he actually provides information on, on the record too. I mean, he's good in groups. You know, he's good in telling stories. That's, I think that's the big thing, right? He's good telling stories and he makes people feel smarter when he talks. Can we spend a moment congratulating David Ross for turning 140 regular season games as a Cub into not only a memoir, which would have been, by the way, unimaginable two years ago in David Ross's yeah. life, to a starring role on a network television show, Dancing with the Stars, where he is apparently still alive or got a perfect score or something like that. I, I cannot watch, bring myself to watch. That's incredible. Yeah, think- That's incredible. I mean, the, talk about the winners of the Cubs nostalgia lottery, David Ross. You did it, buddy. I mean, I, it's unbelievable, the David Ross story, that he, you know, listen, it's, this is what I always say, and I, I've joked with people about opening a consulting firm called Clubhouse Guys, where, you, <laughs> where you, you get hired by agents or teams, and you, you know, you talk to these guys on the, coming up or whatever, and be like, listen, man, be nice to reporters, be, always be at your locker, it takes like 20 minutes of your day tell stories, be funny, and you will have a career for the rest of your life in sports. It usually helps if you're a white backup catcher, but <laughs> you know, it, could, it could go for anything. Those, the backup catchers in the Cubs have always been, for some reason, very personable. I don't know what, I don't know what it is, but we always find ourselves talking to Paul Bacco or, you know, or some of these guys. Uh, so, yeah, it's, it's amazing what, what he did. And, you know, he was really, his first year, he was basically just there to catch John Lester. And he didn't hit it all that first year. And then he actually came back last year and hit pretty well for most of the season. I mean, you know, we make listen, there's plenty of, of, of blowback in Chicago. People are, you know, sick of it a little bit, right? Sure. You know, we're a little cynical here. And, and But he did hit a homer in game seven off Andrew Miller. <laughs> so that's like even, that's the funny part is that doesn't even get, that's crazy that he hit a homer off Andrew Miller, the best reliever in the playoffs. This guy, you know, it's amazing that John Lester. John Lester got him the job. You know, I mean, Theo liked him, and he worked with him before, and they knew he'd be a good, you know, veteran guy, but he's here to catch John Lester, basically, which is just, it is, it's an amazing story, and we don't feel like it's ever going to end. Like, he'll be, God knows what he's going to be doing next. But he's, you know what, I talked to him when he was, we all met with him when he did the strat, seventh inning stretch here, and, he, you know, couldn't have been nicer. Couldn't have been a nicer guy, and uh, I, I do think this, we, we, we all seem to think this dancing with the stars thing's a little rigged with the abc disney stuff but <laughs> not not, not a bad conspiracy theory by the way you start your Good. firm clubhouse guys i'm going to start a competing firm clubhouse cancers and i'm actually fascinated <laughs> who gets more tv and book deals because it, it would be close right clubhouse cancers are interesting too and you know this a rod is on uh is on fox so you know there's 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 hope for both of us in there let me ask you one last question because i think the cubs finally winning the World Series changes a lot of things. There's been a lot of talk about how it's changed the mindset of Cub fans who have existed in this realm of loserdom for so long. Do you notice any change at all so far, it's early, but so far, in the Chicago media, who in the way they talk about the Cubs and the way they cover the Cubs? That's a good question. Uh, Well, you know, here's the thing. I moved here in 03. And I lived in Chicago and Evanston a couple summers in college, but full-time I moved here in 03, you know, I think around May, so the season had just started. And the Cubs, you know, were really good. They obviously got on that run that year and had that famous game, so there was a lot of expectations that year and the next year. And then, you know, 07, 08, 09, when they didn't make the playoffs, there were those expectations again. So 
you know, I guess you have to end. The biggest thing is there's no more talk about, you know, there's no more fatalism with the Cubs. That I mean, it was that was you know that was missing for a couple of those years, like I said. But the, that that stuff's done. There isn't it isn't there anymore. There's no more like, well, this is definitely going to go wrong. You know, there's no more smirking. Like you know, it even happened in the playoffs a little bit. You know, like smirking when stuff was going wrong. Like here you go again. They can't escape it. You know, no matter who's in charge or how well this team's built, there's something there. Yeah, the mystical the mystical nature of Cubs reporting is probably done. I think that that part is over. You're not going to get the poetry of that. I think, you know, we all wrote our Game 7 stories, you know, and mine was probably pretty overwrought, at least one of them. And, you know, we then it went to the parade, and we did that too, and, you know, all the people. And then it kind of just went back to normal, you know? I, I always joke that the thing that made me happy is how much criticism there was of Joe Madden in the offseason. Like, every time the guy would talk... It was just people bringing up Game 7. I'm like, that is great because we've been, you know, Dusty Baker gets killed for everything. Lou Pinella, <laughs> you know, it's like it, things are back to normal. We always said, like, what's going to happen when the manager wins the World Series will be treated like a hero? No, people treat Joe Madden like he's an idiot, even though he won the World Series. So I do think that is the big thing that's changed. I think people trust Theo now. That has changed. You know, no one's ripping on the owners anymore. But, you know, things always have a way of working out, right? Some, this run is going to end, and then people are going to just go back ripping on everyone again. I, I feel like there is always going to be some normalcy, you know, with any team. But yeah, I, I would say the the mythical nature has been buried. The goat has been buried. I think we could call that the Shaughnessy effect, when all the voodoo yeah. and mystical thing, and the one column that you write every year, come hell or high right. water, goes out the window, and then you just got to write about baseball. That's you know what that's, and I said I was. You know, listen, it's good. We have a new business, The Athletic. You know, it's a subscription thing, so we want Cubs fans to be happy to want to subscribe to our content, right? So, like, them winning is good for me, personally. But I also wanted them to win because I'm tired of writing the same stuff. <laughs> like, some, you know, like, I'm just tired of it. I mean, it, it, there's new problems now, but, like, let's move on to new story, people. So thank you to the 2016 Cubs for, for uh, ending the bad, uh, the bad stories. And now we can have new bad stories. You can read John Greenberg and subscribe to John Greenberg on The Athletic Chicago. He will be filing columns between reading 18 Cubs books this year. John, thanks for doing this. Thanks for having me, Brian. I appreciate it. Huge thanks to Brian Kenny, Claire McNear, and John Greenberg. I'm Brian Curtis of The Ringer. Stay tuned for more great stuff on Channel 33. See you soon.